The theme today may lead you to believe that I harbour a hidden passion for football. But alas, that is not the case. Um, Though I do remember when I was living in Canada on a very cold, snowy day, being very glad to find some sport that I understood um, on the television. Scoring goals in extra time was the title of a seminar held in the Bible College a number of years ago. It was organized by um, several of the mission organizations. And the aim was really to encourage people who were maybe in the 50 plus age group, maybe nearing retirement, maybe retired, to think about the fact that it's not just the energetic 20s and 30s with their passion and vision that the Lord wants to use overseas but it's those with life experience and professional experience and hopefully passion and vision as well that God wants to use. I had thought from time to time about going overseas. It had never happened. I'd never really pursued it. And I went out as much of interest and to keep a friend company than anything else. But it was then interesting when I retired and having visited a friend in Nepal how when the opportunity came up to go and work there, it just very much seemed to be what God was leading me to do. I'm a physiotherapist by profession, and that's what I went to do, to be a physiotherapist in Nepal, working alongside the um, tutors um, of the course in Dulikel, um, a beautiful sounding place and indeed a beautiful place about 30 kilometers east of Kathmandu, sitting in the hills surrounding that city. So the reason that I um, chose the passage from Colossians today was not that I'm going to do another sermon um, and try to surpass Steve on a sermon on that chapter of Colossians, but the last verse that talks about, I can find it, And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That just happened to be the verse that I had on my prayer cards. And so it seemed appropriate, while we did have it last week, um, to have that passage read again today. And so what I want to try and think about a little bit is how I endeavoured to work that out as I was um, living and working in Nepal. If you went to a church service in Nepal, or if you met someone along the street in Nepal, they would greet you by saying, Namaste. If you go to church in Nepal, Namaste means I honour the divine in you. If you are a Christian, and you meet another Christian, and you are in church, they will say, Jamesy. So I say to you, Jamesy, and you respond, we'll try that again. That is not very Nepali. The Nepalis are extremely enthusiastic. Jamesy. Thank you. The Nepali flag is quite distinctive, you will notice. It's the one flag in the world that is not an exact rectangle. So when you think about Nepal, what do you think about? 
Do you think about those wonderful white peaks? Eight of the 10 highest mountains of the world, including Everest, are in Nepal, and some of you will have heard Nigel speak about that um, one evening um, a couple of months ago. And I had the privilege of looking out on these wonderful mountains most mornings from October to February. They're majestic, they're awesome, they're beautiful, um, they're absolutely fantastic. You might think um, it's a place to go for a holiday, to trek, um, as did one of my two of my visitors, um, Mo and another friend, Aileen, on the Annapurna Trail. Maybe you think you're a lover of wildlife and you think about um, those elusive tigers of Chitwan National Park. You're very unlikely to see a tiger, but you're much more likely to see a crocodile slithering into the water. Or if you go for an early morning walk, you might see some fabulous birds of a feathered variety. Perhaps for you, Nepal brings up, up pictures of wonderful temples. You think about that Hindu kingdom with its rich culture and history as World Heritage sites. 80% of the people are Hindu and about 10% are um, Buddhist. And this is one of the big Buddhist um, uh, monasteries or temples in Kathmandu. Perhaps if you were a young person in the 60s and 70s, you think of the hippie trail and you thought of going overland to India and Nepal. Um, that had been a dream of mine at one stage. Iran and Afghanistan got in the way. But I did meet a good friend there who um, actually that was her first visit to Nepal, was in a truck overland from London, and she was Canadian. So some facts. Nepal is a landlocked country. It sits between the two powerful nations of India in the south, on which it is very dependent, and China to the north. And with the large number of Tibetan refugees, it needs to keep both India and um, China very happy. It covers an area approximately equivalent to that of England and Wales, and has a population of approximately 30, 000, 30 million, with 1.5 living in Kathmandu. Very varied terrain, from the high mountains in the north, um, through the hills um, and beautiful valleys, um, to the Terai bordering the, um, Indi India. There was a 10-year period when there was um, like a civil war in Nepal, um, with the Maoist uprisings. And that led eventually to a peace accord in 2006, and the monarchy was abolished. It was a hereditary monarchy, and the monarch was seen as an incarnation of one of their gods. So what does that do to your faith, to how you view your country, when you decide to get rid of your king, who is a god? But because he was very unpopular, and because um, democracy really wasn't working, um, they got rid of the king, um, and the Maoist leader, for a while, was the actual leader of the country. It's now a federal democratic republic. Unrest continues, and it's politically very unstable. The prime minister was forced out probably around about last May, and it's only within the last few weeks that a new prime minister has actually been appointed. A very unstable country politically. During that 10-year period, 12,000 people died, 100,000 were displaced, 
a lot moving from the hills into the cities, a lot moving to India, people trying to get away from being conscripted by the Maoists. There's a lot of um, human rights abuses on both sides, both from the army and police and on the part of the Maoists. But how many times did you hear about those 12,000 people who had died on the news? Very rarely. You perhaps heard about the royal massacre when several members of the, of the royal family were all killed at the one time, um, thought to be by the crown prince. That did make the headlines, but not much else does apart from a sense of Everest. So Nepal is all of those wonderful things. It has the wonderful mountains, the wildlife. It has um, uh, beautiful places. Oops, right. It has colourful markets. You saw some in um, the, the slides that um, um, Muriel showed earlier. Very colourful place. Um, Kathmandu is hiving. It's a busy, busy place. Interesting little shops. Um, and you'll buy anything from um, copper to rugs to um, pashminas to a fruit and veg in the markets in Kathmandu. You might even find one or two tourists around as well. But Nepal is also a country where there is a very poor infrastructure. Um, this is a main street in Kathmandu with the garbage on the street. Um, you can't see so much in this photograph, but the power lines are all over the place. You may be noticed in one of Muriel's uh, photographs. Power lines going everywhere. Things are very Heath Robinson. I remember um, my phone wasn't working and having contacted the telephone company or somebody contacting the telephone company on my behalf because my Nepali was not particularly good, um, having done various things, my landlord then came up there was a coil of wires around the, the um, edge of the terrace, fiddled a few wires, and lo and behold, my phone was working. So the next time my phone didn't work, I fiddled a few wires and got it working. It just had to be that connection between, you know, half a centimetre that hooked into a tiny ring and made all the difference. Infrastructure very poor, water, Great in Kathmandu, great problems with water. Um, some of I was fine most of the time out in Kathmandu, uh, in Dulikel. But in Kathmandu, um, some of the folks there have real problems. They maybe get water delivered by a truck. Um, they have a bucket underneath the basin so that they collect water that they use for washing their teeth or washing their face in order to flush the toilet. Um, big problems with infrastructure. And Kathmandu, a great city in many ways, but a dirty, dirty city. It's in a valley, um, there's loads of traffic, um, lots of pollution, there are um, brick factories through the valley. One day I went uh, on the bus going out to, to Dulikel and I counted 12 brick factories pumping black smoke into the air. So incredibly polluted, and a haze sits down over Kathmandu, and you can almost see the dust in the air at times. So a really exciting place in many ways, but also um, a very um, dirty place. A very poor country, 
About 40% of the population live in po poverty. And while the life expectancy is about 64 overall, in remote regions, it's probably more like 40. It's a country in which three, three to four newborns die every hour in Nepal, and one in 11 children um, will not reach their fifth birthday. Agricultural economy mainly. So what of the church in Nepal? The Christian church was established um, by Nepalis, not by Western missionaries going in to take the gospel. Right? It was established by Nepalis who'd been living in India and um, then returned to Nepal when the country opened in uh, the early 50s. And so the church has grown indigenously. It's grown through the evangelistic efforts of Nepalis and not Westerners. Um, the, that is a real richness to the church in Nepal. And the people are extremely enthusiastic. The church is growing, oftentimes through um, someone praying for healing of a family member, and that will bring somebody to faith, and oftentimes other members of the family will follow. They're very um, exuberant in their expression um, of faith and can now only in recent years um, uh, publicly express um, their faith. Um, this was a photograph, this was taken at Christmas two years ago um, and shows the congregation on the roof of the church. It was led from the roof, the inside was packed, it was a big church, um, and at the end, um, a big bunch of balloons, each balloon containing a bit of paper with the real message of Christmas in it, um, sent over the city. They're amazingly creative and um, people and um, know how to celebrate um, so much. So what does mission do in Nepal? Um, Missionaries did not go in primarily to take the gospel. They were not allowed to preach, but the missions went in to um, take in health care. The like of UMN is responsible for hospitals. Some of you will have heard of Tansan, of Okaldunga, Ampipal, hospitals in remote regions of Nepal, as well as in the cities. Schools, engineering projects, hydro projects, technical colleges, and these are the sorts of things that um, people went in to do. They went in um, to, they saw the needs of the people, and mission is about seeing the needs and responding to them in Jesus' name. Okay? People were hungry, people were in need, people had no health care, um, people were, babies were dying, mothers were dying in birth, and so they um, missions are going in to deal with that situation, to be Jesus, not only speaking the good news, but being um, the good news. Now, UMN doesn't actually run many of their former things. They still run a couple of hospitals, but they work with grassroots organizations to try to address some of the root causes of poverty. So they work through um, Nepali organizations to deal with things um, like peace building, and some of you will have heard Joe Campbell speak about that. Food sovereignty, health and gender issues, um, HIV AIDS, promoting 
livelihood so that people can make enough money to live and not be dependent. Um, and that is much more about what they are doing and living out their, their lives um, before the people. So what was I doing? I was a physiotherapist here, I was a physiotherapist there. And my role was really to build up the capacity of the Nepali teachers in order to help them to be more effective in their work and course administration. Living in Nepal was a tremendous privilege. This is where I worked. Um, this was Dulikal Medical Institute, where the physiotherapy course was. A hundred steps from where the photograph was taken down to the college, and those were walked each day, um, as well as um, up and down hills um, to work. So I got fit and did lose a bit of weight, which I've put back on. It was great to have that opportunity and privilege Great to be able to learn a new language, to work alongside um, other people from different countries, to worship with Nepali people, to meet new people. Um, and I really enjoyed the simplicity of life. Um, I came back here and went to, to shop. Um, and did I want washing powder, bio or non-bio? color or gentle? Did I want liquid? Did I want powder? Did I want um, tablets? I just wanted washing powder. I had good washing powder that, ruined my, that was good, relatively good for my clothes, or dreadful washing powder when I was in Nepal, a choice of two. So choice um, is amazing here, and the simplicity of life. To be able to just buy your vegetables on the way home and then um, cook them. Um, Christmas in Nepal was a really lovely time. I missed my family, but on both occasions I had visitors with me and that was super. But there wasn't a jingle in the shops from September to December. And while here that can be a turnoff and make me think, I don't want anything to do with Christmas. There, the fact that there was nothing, I had to be intentional about realizing Christmas is coming, and there was something very powerful about that. There was about one shop in Kathmandu that had really nice Christmas decorations and things that catered to um, expatriates. But the simplicity of life was really very special. So it was a great experience, a great privilege, but it also came with its challenges. Being on holiday in another country is interesting. You see a new culture, you experience how people do things. But when you're living there for a while, it can become a bit of a, a different story. You think, why on earth do they do things that way? Why can the Pallies not plan at least one day in advance? And there can be times when you think, I've had enough, get me on the next plane out of here. So the practicalities of living are some of the challenges. No power for up to 16 hours a day. You maybe have it for four hours in the afternoon when you're at work and four hours in the middle of the night when you're hopefully asleep. But one just gets used to that. I think my camping experience probably helped. But I now enjoy not having to use a head torch when I cook. And I now enjoy not having to check the electricity schedule to see whether I can use my hairdryer and have a hot shower. 
during the last month, last um, nine months, I had a really good backup backup system, and that was tremendous. It gave me the opportunity to then have some, um, at least one light bulb um, when the power was off. So, Muriel mentioned the cold, and that is not a little Buddha. <laughs> that is. Um, that is your friend Janet, who came to visit me last Christmas. And while it is lovely in the winter during the day, the sun shines, blue skies, it's absolutely gorgeous. And you can sit out on the, on the roof at work, sit out and after church on a Saturday um, and um, eat a pakora and have a, a cup of coffee. Um, when the sun goes down or you are in the shade, it is cold. Now, it doesn't in the Kathmandu Valley go really much before below freezing. There was frost on the ground a couple of days, and it was really interesting to see one of the students stop and feel this. I don't think he'd ever seen frost before. But it goes down close to freezing. I had a gas heater which didn't work, and so I became a great fan of thermals, of layers, of rugs, of hot water bottles, and warm socks and lots of, you went out in the morning with your layers on and your um, uh, fleece on and probably a wrap around as well. By the time it was 11 o'clock and you were sitting out in the roof, you would just have your jumper on. Um, and so it was uh, the cold, getting used to that um, was um, interesting but it's something you just get on with. Muriel mentioned travel. I was frequently on one of these buses, not on the top. Um, and in those tuk-tuks that you saw, those little small vehicles, you get in at the back, and because you're tall like me, you invariably bang your head. And then there are about four seats or five seats, room for four. Um, maybe room for five Nepalis who are much smaller than me but it is amazing how many can sit on a seat. And you're sitting there, and you're like this. And, or if you're in the bus, or if you're in one of the vans, and more people pile in. I got myself in a good seat, on the aisle, room for my backpack, space, right? And then the bus gets in. And then you find that actually somebody's almost sitting on the arm of your seat, and then somebody's almost hanging over you. So you're like this. Personal space um, is not to be had in transportation in, um, in and around um, Nepal. And it's tiring. I, at one stage, was um, supervising students in one of the hospitals in Kathmandu. And I, it was at the opposite side. I was staying with my friend Jenny, and it was the opposite side of the, of the city. And so I had to get um, a tuk-tuk into... Um, the centre of Kathmandu, and then find another one. And they're all there. And which is the number five that I want? And you think you've got the right one, and then, no, you have to walk another 100 yards to find the right one. And you try to get one that has a space beside the door, but invariably you get pushed up inside. And then you can't see out to see where you are. Um, and somebody said to me at one stage, Patricia, get a life, take a taxi. And so when I was feeling tired, when I was feeling overwhelmed by it, I took a taxi. 
and then you hoped that the taxi would stay in the lane. There aren't lanes in Nepal. The one law of the road in Nepal is that the, tri- the, the vehicle in front has right of way. Now that could be the vehicle, that could be the motorbike that has just come out from a side road right in front of you. It could be the motorbike that passes you on the right and cuts across on the left. Um, and uh, so it could be the, um, that you're in a taxi and you're going up um, a winding road, something like this, and you're coming to a, a corner and the taxi driver honk, 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 honk as he passes um, uh, a truck and just squeezes in between himself and the next truck. And so you pray hard and you ask God to place his angels around the taxi that you're in. Um, as on one occasion I... Um, went one evening at night um, from Pokhara in the west to um, Kathmandu. So travel, not pleasant. The roads are dreadful. It was 32 kilometers from um, Kathmandu to Dulikhel. Um, There's been complaints about potholes in the roads here recently. You haven't seen potholes. You haven't traveled on a road with potholes. Um, You bounce along. Um, and it takes an hour and a half to do 32 kilometres, if you're lucky, to get from Dulikel to where I would have stayed when I was in Kathmandu. So travel was a bit of a challenge. This was a road in the far west. I was only on it once, and I didn't tell my family before I went. But there were steep, um, what do you call it? The sides of the road were very steep, even on the road from Kathmandu to Poker. Despite the fact that languages were never my strong point, when I would have been on holiday with Mo Carswell, I just went along in Mo's coattails. Um, she loves language. She would remember what the people said it was. And I would be saying to her, Maureen, what did they say the word for that was? You know? and, um, but I really enjoyed learning Nepali. I didn't get very good at it but I got enough that I could do my shopping um, and buy my, buy my fruit and veg at a shop like this. I had enough that I could order um, food in a cafe. Um, I could tell the taxi driver where I was going. I could tell him that no, he wasn't going to overcharge me, that I did live in Nepal and that he wasn't going to charge me tourist rates and that he would charge me um, Nepali rate and such like things. You've probably been on holiday, sat in a cafe and listened to the languages around you and drunk in the atmosphere of that. Imagine you are sitting at the lunch table at work and while the course was taught in English and the students spoke English, at lunchtime the staff are chattering away in Nepali. Now I had some Nepali. I could pick up a few words, but not enough to really follow the conversation. So imagine you're around that table and you don't understand Nepali. Imagine you're um, around a table and someone from another country is sitting at that table with you and they don't understand English. How do you feel? How do they feel? It can be incredibly isolating. They don't mean to isolate you, but that's how you feel. Um, And that can be tough, and it can be very tiring um, to learn a new language. That's one of my big regrets 
that I didn't learn the language better and become more proficient in it. I could have had much more meaningful relationships if that had been the case. Um, but somehow, busyness, pressures, work, tiredness gets in the way of doing some of those things that you know would help you in the situation. But it's just too wearying. So you're sitting there. Mentally and emotionally, it's tiring. Making relationships is hard work at the best of times when you know the language, but it becomes more difficult across language and cultures. And then there are the other aspects of communication. If I nod my head, you know I mean yes. If I shake my head, you know I mean no. But what do I mean if I do that? So Nepalese of all three. That's very interesting. Does that mean, yeah, I really agree? Does that mean, okay, if you think so? And what do they mean by what they say? When they say that they agree with you or they do something, are they saying that because they know that's what you want to hear? Or are they saying it because it's what they really do want? Um, We tend to be very direct in our communication. Nepalese are not. We go into a meeting and you have your agenda and you have your time and you sit down and you start the meeting. Nepalese might be on time. They might even remember that they've got a meeting to go to. I'm becoming very Nepali because I see the time is moving on and I could have you here for a Nepali service, which would be two hours, but I'll try not. Um, So how do you get by that? How do you communicate in a way that is not putting them down, not being critical of them, um, not making them feel that what they do is all wrong? How do you help them to see that there's maybe a better way of doing things? You have to sometimes come at things from a bit of a tangent, and you make mistakes. You say things, you do things that are an offence to people, totally because you don't understand. Um, And that can be hard. Within the Nepali culture, position is very important. Nepalis know by the name whether they're a Brahmin, a Chetri, a Newar, a Dalit. And they know how to position themselves according to that. Likewise, in the work situation, um, if you have lots of qualifications, regardless of what you can do, as long as you have the bits of paper, you're definitely better than someone else. If you're older, if you're from overseas, if you're a man, then you are definitely in a better position. And I find that very challenging. Challenging in terms of how I related to the Nepali people, the other Nepali staff, who referred to me as Patricia Ma'am. Well, I'm not used to being Patricia Ma'am. I'm just used to being Patricia. Um, And I wanted them to see me as an equal. But in actual fact, they can't do that because that is not part of their culture. They respect you, and so you have to accept that. But then when I had difficulty, when it became a problem, although it wasn't initially, that I wasn't able to register as a physiotherapist, because of all things, I didn't have my school certificates. Um, That became a bit of a difficulty. And so how people view you, what they're not saying, can become a bit of a problem. And you can feel, um, perhaps, misunderstood These were some of the students that I worked with. 
and trying to encourage them in their work and to problem solve a bit more and not to learn by rote was quite exciting. My heart cried for the women of Nepal. They have really tough lives. They work really hard. Boys are important. Boys get fed first. The husband and the boys get fed first. The girls will then get what's left over. The girls will be those that go out to help in the fields or to work. They'll be those that are looking after the other siblings. Maybe washing up at the cafe, um, washing the dishes. Girls marry young in the hills particularly. This was um, one of the physios getting married. But in the hills, girls marry young, start families very young. Um, there can be difficulties in, uh, in this young woman now because she is married. She enters her husband's family. So she's responsible for getting up at five o'clock in the morning and making the food, going to work, coming home, making the food again from the, for the family. Um, they have difficult lives, a lot of pressure. Very hard work. Is it any wonder that the um, rate of um, uterine prolapse in Nepal is excessively high um, in um, women of a child, childbearing age? They're working in building sites carrying really heavy loads um, and they have a very difficult time. A lot of widows in Nepal, widows because of the war, but also women whose husbands leave them um, or who get divorced, divorce is rare, or not if their husband dies, they can't remarry. Right? They can be abandoned, put out by their families. Husbands can remarry if the wife dies. Husband, men will take a second wife. Women, no. And this is where you find in the churches oftentimes a lot of widows. And this project is supported by a Christian by Christian group, it's Christian women um, making jewellery, and they get enough to be able to send their children to school and feed themselves. I'm generally the sort of person that can be relatively content in my own company, but I do like people. I had anticipated that there would be quite a large expatriate community at the hospital in Dulikel, and that was not the case. I was very fortunate that there was one English couple there. Um, Alan and Tap, the younger couple in that picture. And I became good friends with them, um, although they weren't there all the time. But I was really blessed in that there was another Australian couple, the older couple, who were there for a few months and still there when Alan and Tat left last March. So they were there for a couple of months. So friends are very important. When you're in a country like Nepal and you don't have your normal supports around you, you don't have those people that you can phone up and say, you'll never guess what they want me to do now, and they want it by nine o'clock tomorrow morning. You don't have the people that you can vent off to about what is going on in your life. You don't have those normal supports around you. Things can get quickly out of perspective. And I found that that happened to me on several occasions, that things just got out of perspective. And that's when friends are very important. So pray for people that are overseas, that they will have people around them who can help them to get things back in perspective. And I was fortunate that people came and visited me. And you'll see Mo in the middle of that picture. And that was great. Um, 
and uh, other things that really helped in terms of relationships and helped one to feel not alone were the ability to Skype, to get emails, um, but it was the, the letters, the cards, the little packages that all made such a difference in not feeling isolated and alone and not remembered by people. And that's very important when you can be in an environment that can be isolating in many, many ways. So you're surrounded in Nepal by signs of Hinduism and Buddhism, the sound of worship bells and horns each day, see people going daily to the temple with offerings. Um, this is at one of the festivals where um, the men are honored, worshiped by the, by the women and the, by their sisters. Um, this was at a special festival where people were taking their offerings, queuing up to give their offerings to the gods and to bow their forehead to touch the, the um, stone idol of the god. At this particular place, many goats were killed um, and there was dancing in the blood of the goats. And I walked past the next day to see the, the area all discolored and on my way home then being washed. How do you relate to that? How do you be a Christian in the face of that? How do you impact on that society? And I don't have the answer. I suppose I tried to be God's person, to live my life in a way that honored God and to see myself in all my relationships and in what I did as his representative. And so when you're surrounded by, by that, maintaining your own spiritual um, uh, health is very, very important. Um, apart from Alan and Tat, um, there were no other Christians, expatriate Christians in, um, in Dulikil. I went to a small Nepali church. A couple, some of them spoke some English. The sermon was long. I sometimes picked up what the Bible passengers were and tried to sort of think, what on earth is the link between that and that? I sometimes would sit and just read the Bible passage and make some notes myself. But it was important for me to be there. Um, at times it was difficult. Um, and I was reminded when they, um, we had one guitar, um, a tambourine, a hand drum, and maybe a young girl on another guitar. And then we would sing, and nothing would be in tune. And I'd long for Fitzroy and worship and music. And then I was reminded as the young girl continued to strum in the guitar as she raised her hand that was supposed to be plucking out the chords. Um, and I was reminded, God says, make a joyful noise. He doesn't actually say make a tuneful noise, Patricia. So just be here and drink in the fact that these people love Jesus and we worship the one God. And that's a real honor and a real privilege to share with people. Also spending time with other people from UMN. This was taken at the UMN retreat. Um, Trevor Morrow was the speaker and that was absolutely great. Um, and so that also fed, feeds into spiritual health. Bible study with, um, uh, with Alan and Tat, the times that I went into Kathmandu, Bible study with um, Joe and Janet and another friend, Maureen. 
But that was little bits and pieces. So I found it essential to surround myself with Christian readings. I would read um, maybe a psalm each morning. Um, I would have Christian music on. My iPod had everything, had Beethoven, Eric Clapton, um, the Beatles, um, and uh, jazz. But what did I listen to? I listened to Christian music. It was the Stuart Town end with the strong biblical message, Chris Tomlin um, uh, type of music that I found I needed to surround myself in. And don't we all in our lives need to earth ourselves and surround ourselves and make sure in our lives that we are surrounding ourselves in this um, culture that we are in, in the empire that we um, work in day and daily with things that will feed our souls. And for me, um, that was, was very important. Those mountains, to look out and see the mountains was a real thrill. I could have sat at a certain spot, which Janet went to me with me, for hours just looking at the mountains. They are beautiful. They are awesome. They are majestic. They are powerful. They change from morning to night. They change from season to season. But they are wonderful and they are there. And then in the middle of the day, I'd look out and they weren't there. End of February through to October, no mountains. Were they there? Yes, they were there. And for me, the mountains are a metaphor for God. There are times in our lives when God is very real. We are so conscious of the majesty, of the power, of the beauty of our Saviour. But there are times when it just doesn't seem real. God seems distant. Where is God? Does God really know what's going on in my life? But like the mountains, they were there behind those clouds. I couldn't see them through the smog hanging over Kathmandu when I was in the city. But they were there. And despite how we feel, God is there. And that's one of the things that I think I learned more about was how to trust, not in my feelings, but in the reality and the fact that God is there and God knows what the issues are, what the difficulties are, that I don't rely on my feelings, but that I rely on God's word and God's promise that he is with me. So the Himalayas, Nepal, a wonderful country, for me, a tremendous experience. What did I learn? I'm still working that out. Um, but I know that it was a very special experience and um, uh, a great privilege to have been able to be there and learn something about what it means to serve God in a different place.